Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK. The capital B, capital T, and a capital UK, or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. I hope you're sitting comfortably as we start our sorry tale of the unfortunate Lucy Derrick. The year is 1879, and in this year, the main thing that was happening was the Anglo-Zulu War, which lasted from the 11th of January to the 4th of July. On the 8th of February, bushranger Ned Kelly and his gang raided the town of Geldery, New South Wales, locking up the town's two policemen, stealing their uniforms, cutting the telegraph lines and robbing the bank. Kelly also pens the famous Geldery Letter. On May the 30th, New York City's Gilmore's Garden is renamed Madison Square Garden after fourth president James Madison by William Henry Vanderbilt and is open to the public at 26th Street and Madison Avenue. On July the 19th, Doc Holliday kills for the first time after a man shoots up his New Mexico saloon. Amongst other things happening in that year, on the 18th of September, the Blackpool illuminations were lit for the very first time. And on the 30th of December, the comic opera The Pirates of the Penzance is first presented in Paynton in Devon. And in a token performance for UK copyright reasons, the world premiere is given the following day in New York City, the only Gilbert and Sullivan work to have its official debut outside of England. And also on that day, according to the Belfast newsletter, the domestic servant, Lucy Derrick, from Yatton in Somerset, is travelling to see her boyfriend in Gloucester. It seems that Lucy had once been a servant in the employ of Mr William Burge of North End Farm, but had left his service two years before. She had failed to find regular employment and was said to be of weak intellect. She had formed an attachment to Jacob Needs, some two or three years older than herself, who lived with his mother at Horse Castle in Yatton, and she became known locally as Jacob's wife. Jacob Needs was in the militia and had to go to Gloucester for training. Her response to this was that she would make her way to Gloucester and try to find employment there, so that she could be near him. 
She had last been seen with needs in a public house in Yatton, when she brought him beer and some biscuits. At that time, she had with her a brown paper parcel, which contained what remained of her work clothes. She'd sold most of the rest of her stuff to cover her travel costs. She left Yatton sometime on the Tuesday and was seen the following morning, Wednesday the 2nd of April, at Thornbury. She called into the Boar's Head in Thornbury for a glass of beer. The publican there said she was respectably dressed and talked in a manner decidedly superior to that of a labourer's or artisan's wife. Apparently, she'd said she'd been living with her mother-in-law, but was now on her way to join her husband, who had obtained work in Gloucester. Lucy fell asleep before she'd even finished her glass of beer, and the landlord let her rest there for a couple of hours. When her body was later found, she was carrying a letter that she had written to Jacob, which shows the strength of the poor girl's feelings for him. Dear Jacob, I send these few lines to you, hoping to find you quite well, as it leaves me at present. Thank God for it. Dear Jacob, my darling pet, my anxious love, I have not been very well since I saw you last, but love, I have got everything already. Please, darling, don't deceive me, and when we have arrived home, we will get on like wholesale, and will never leave you, nor never hurt you, but I will do as ever lie in my power for you, my sweetest. Her body was identified at the Thornbury Union Workhouse by her uncle, William Cooksley, who was a labourer from Blagden. So it seems that she did have some relations. However, her body was never taken home, wherever that would have been for Lucy. She was buried in a plain coffin at Thornbury. There was no family or friends to serve as mourners at the funeral, but a large crowd of onlookers. The burial service was read by Reverend T. Waters. Her grave is still visible there, in St Mary's Churchyard, in Thornbury today. And for our word of the week this week, I give you whooper-ups. Now this is a Victorian term that means inferior noisy singers and could easily be used liberally today during karaoke sessions. And now, let us continue with today's story. The next character in the tale is Edward Smart. He also went by the name Edward Saunders, but we'll call him Smart for our tale. He was the perpetrator of the crime and seems almost as unfortunate in some ways as his victim. At the time, it was thought that he was obviously mentally ill. The descriptions of him make him seem like a nice young man to look at, short and fair, with a pleasant personality, and he seemed to have been quite well dressed. The Belfast newsletter gave some background to his life and said that he had been in prison twice for convictions relating to arson that he had left prison in January. It seems Edward was the illegitimate son of Mrs Elizabeth Hitchman, who kept a lodging house in Brighton. Edward was born in Marylebone in London and spent his early years in that city. He travelled to Pucklechurch, where he worked for two or three years for Joseph Bennett, a general shopkeeper, before returning back to London. 
he gave up his work in the papier-mâché factory there and went to Buckinghamshire, where he drifted into a life of crime. He set fire to a hayrick and then gave himself up to police. He was tried at Aylesbury for arson on the 10th of March, 1865, and sentenced to six years' penal servitude. He was released on the 10th of March, 1870, and in August of that year he was again tried for arson. When he came out of prison for a second time, he went to stay with his aunt, Mrs Julia Short, of 7 Cambridge Street in Totterdown. Her husband was an engine driver. It was said that during his time in prison, his behaviour caused him to be placed under restraint as he tried to kill himself, and later he was placed in association as he was not thought safe to be left alone for any length of time. Apparently, Edward was affected by a brain fever, which seems to have had a lasting effect on him. While at his aunt's house, his behaviour again became eccentric, and he said he felt unwell. He complained of feeling weak, and he had pains in his head. Sometimes he would suddenly jump up and say, let's go and knock someone down. His aunt would later say in court that after she realised that Edward had gone, her husband noticed his handkerchief, boots, cap, two knives, a razor and a coal hammer were all missing. When he was searched at the police station after the crime, Edward was found wearing two coats. In the first one was found the hammer, wrapped in the handkerchief, as well as the two knives and a razor. All were saturated in blood. Edward had left his uncle's house early in the morning of the 2nd of April, 1879, with the razor, the hammer and the two knives. Before leaving Bristol, he called at the house of a poor woman in Gloucester Street and asked her for a drink of water. While she went to fetch it, he took out his hammer, ready to attack her. What he really wanted to do was slit her throat. But before she returned with the water, Several small children had gathered round the door, so he stopped. He then walked to Thornbury, where he saw two young girls with prams containing children of Mr Stafford Howard, MP. They were standing outside the gate of his residence, Thornbury Castle. Edward made up his mind to murder them, but as he was nearing them, some people came in sight, and he walked on. Soon after that, he met Lucy Derrick, or rather, he slackened his pace in order that she would overtake him. The reports say that PC Nathaniel Westaway saw Edward on Wednesday the April 2nd, while on duty in Morton. Fifteen or twenty yards behind him was Lucy, and the pair were walking slowly at the same pace. PC Westaway assumed that they were travelling together, the attack and murder took place near Pitpool at Upper Morton, a mile from Thornbury. Mr Charles Cox of Ithels Mills, Kingswood, near Charfield, was a traveller in the flock trade. As he approached Pitpool, his horse began snorting, presumably because it could smell the blood. He saw the woman lying on a heap of stones at the side of the road, and with a man sitting next to her, Mr Cox asked the man what he had done, and he replied, 
murdered a woman. Mr Cox asked him why, and he said he didn't know. Mr Cox said he would go for help and drove back to Thornbury. He sent a roadman who was sitting on the side of the road to keep an eye on Edward, and it emerged from evidence at the trial that this roadman was an elderly man called William Till, who lived at Crossways. Charles Cox then found a policeman and told him what he had seen. The next time he saw the man, he was in the company of Superintendent Critchley. When Mr Critchley drove up to apprehend him and was getting down, the prisoner said he need not trouble. He would get up, and he did, at once beginning a conversation about the deceased, asking the officer if he knew her, and then commenting about how nice the officer's horse was. He also pointed out the parcel that the woman had dropped when she was attacked. Lucy's body was taken into the Anchor Inn at Morton and then to the Thornbury Union Workhouse. The post-mortem was conducted by Thomas Henry Taylor, a surgeon who practised at Thornbury. He found five contused wounds to her head caused by the hammer. Her throat was cut almost to the spine and the muscles of her neck and windpipe were completely severed. It would appear that a knife he tried to use wasn't sharp enough and the accused had to finish the job with a razor. On Tuesday, April 7th, Edward Smart, otherwise known as Edward Saunders, appeared at the police court in the High Street in Thornbury. As you can expect with a case so serious, the court was crowded and there was great interest and excitement in the town. It was Mr Lloyd, who was the clerk to the magistrates, that read the charge. Edward was wearing a light brown coat, black waistcoat, plaid trousers, blue check shirt and blue socks. The boots he had been wearing at the scene of the crime had been taken away for evidence, and so he had to wear slippers. He was committed for trial at the Spring Assizes. Meanwhile, he was held at Gloucester Jail. Edward was tried at Worcester in Gloucestershire, which was, for the purpose of Assizes, united with Hereford and Monmouth. The reason for such trials being held, even though they were far away from the scene of the crime, was that it was very humanely thought by Her Majesty's Government that no prisoner should remain in custody awaiting his trial for a longer period than three months. The reason he gave for the crime was that he was tired of life and he had left his uncle's house determined to murder someone, anyone. The grand jury deliberated for an hour before they found a true bill against Edward Smart for the willful murder of Lucy Derrick at Thornbury. The jury recommended him for mercy. The judge said that in view of the extraordinary atrocity of the murder, he could only pass a death sentence. The recommendations of the jury would be sent to the proper authorities, but the prisoner was not to hold out any hope that his sentence would be mitigated. On the 28th of April, 1879, it was reported in the press that a petition had been sent to the Home Secretary praying for remission of the extreme penalty. The following day, a letter appeared in the newspapers from Mr Clifton, the solicitor who appeared in Edward's defence. It outlined his medical history, and alarming behaviour 
and appealed for clemency, as his client was obviously insane. He also pointed out that the prisoner's friends were very poor and could hardly afford to pay for the solicitor to go to Worcester, and so they could not afford the expenses that would have had to be paid to witnesses for the defence. On the Saturday, Mr Clifton received a communication that the right honorary gentleman saw no reason to prevent the law taking its course. The next day, the chaplain administered Holy Communion to Edward, and in the evening, Edward spent time reading the Bible and ate a good supper before going to bed. The executioner would be William Marwood, who was the first executioner to refine the long drop. It meant an end to the convulsions and struggling that witnesses saw before Marwood's time, when death occurred from strangulation. He was also credited with the invention of the split trapdoor. He dispatched 180 men and women during his 12 years as executioner. When Marwood arrived at the prison and inspected the place of execution, he asked that the hole into which Edward would be dropped was made five feet deeper, to make sure everything went swiftly, as he prided himself on his humane executions. So it would seem that Edward spent his last night listening to the men digging the hole for his execution. week is about one of the characters in today's tale. It's called William Marwood, the Gentleman Executioner, and it's by Derek Matthews. It goes through William Marwood's life when once he was a shoemaker in Horncastle to becoming an executioner, the chief executioner actually, for London and Middlesex from 1874 until 1883. He always said, I am doing God's work according to divine command and the law of the British Crown. I do it simply as a matter of duty and as a Christian. I sleep soundly as a child in my bed and never am disturbed by phantoms. When I get out of bed in the morning of an execution, I kneel down quietly and ask God's blessing on the work I have to do and ask mercy for the prisoner. I have a sense of divine mission and the belief that regardless of what deeds the condemned man has perpetrated in his time, he deserves to be dispatched as painless as possible. The Backtracker History Show. Stories from the past, brought back to life. If you want to get in touch with me, with show ideas, comments or information, you can, via Twitter or Facebook, using at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK, or email me at info at Backtracker .co.uk Last night I was watching a documentary on the History Channel about how ships are kept together. Riveting. At 7am, the chaplain prayed with Edward and tried to comfort him. But Edward was quite resigned to his fate and didn't really fear death. Just after seven in the morning, on the 12th of May, 1879, the under-sheriff 
enter the cell and claim the body in the usual legal form. At quarter to eight, the prison bell started its toll to death knell. The small group made their way to the scaffold. At least one account describes Marwood, the executioner, in some detail. Apparently he was rather short, middle-aged, attired in pepper and salt trousers and waistcoat, black jacket and bowler, a noticeable adornment of his attire being a massive Albert chain. The only spectators were three medical practitioners and two reporters. The way Edward walked to the scaffold, you'd think he was going just for a daily walk and not to his death. In fact, he was the only one in the small group that didn't seem at all put out by the whole solemn occasion. The chaplain continued reading the opening sentences of the burial service, but no sooner was Edward on the platform than Marwood rapidly proceeded with his work, strapping Edward's legs together. The noose was slipped around his neck, and then Marwood took from his pocket a white cap, which he put over Edward's face. And while the chaplain was reading a prayer, Marwood went to the back of the gallows, where he hit the handle of a lever, and in an instant, the platform fell away with a crash, and the prisoner dropped into a pit below. Later, it would be discovered that although Marwood had given the prisoner a drop of nine feet, Edward's neck was not broken. This was said to be due to the fact that the metal ring sent down from the home office prevented the noose from fitting quite close to the neck. It would seem that Edward suffered for at least two or three minutes after the drop and that he died from suffocation. Outside there was a crowd of at least 500 people. As they were just on the other side of the wall, they could hear everything, including the drop fall, as well as seeing the death flag being hoisted up above the prison as soon as death was confirmed. The body remained suspended for an hour while the jury and coroner held the official inquiry that was posted at the prison lodge. The body was then placed into a pre-prepared coffin, clothes and all and surrounded with quicklime and charcoal. The post-mortem said that Edward had an unusually thick neck, and this was another factor in it not being dislocated. Edward was buried later that same day by the side of the jail, next to a young man called Jones, who had been hanged in 1872 for the murder of a girl in Cheltenham, and was actually the first person executed in private under the new laws. Lucy was buried in a quiet corner of the churchyard at St Mary's Church in Thornbury on the 8th of April, 1879. In 2017, there was concern that the stone was deteriorating and its inscription would be lost forever. So, Thornbury and District Museum stepped in and with funding and assistance from Thornbury Town Council, they arranged for the restoration of the stone and its inscription.
the 8th of August, 1963, the Royal Mail train from Glasgow to Euston was stopped and raided in Buckinghamshire in what was to become known as the Great Train Robbery. The robbers made off with £2 million, mainly in the form of used notes that were scheduled for destruction. On the 9th of August 1945, the second atomic bomb of World War II was dropped on Nagasaki. Also on the 9th of August, but in 1974, Gerald Ford was sworn in as the 38th President of the United States of America after the resignation of Richard Nixon. On the 10th of August in 1821, Missouri became the 24th state of the USA. On the 10th of August in 1842, the Mines Act came in force in the UK, releasing all women and girls, as well as boys under 10, from underground employment. Also, on the 10th of August in 1846, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. was established from funds left at the bequest of English scientist James Smithson. And on the 11th of August in 1909, the SOS distress signal was used for the first time. I hope you enjoyed today's sorry tale of Lucy Derrick. Lucy's letter was read out by Becky Vicker of the St Stephen's Drama Group in Sandwell. I'd also like to give a huge thanks to all those at Thornbury Museum. They were really helpful when I was doing some research and you can find them at www.thornburymuseum.org.uk Another thank you goes to Chris and Sandra at Thornbury Roots, who are also instrumental in the research. You can find them at thornburyroots.co.uk. Here's a short message from some podcast friends of mine. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily, and we're from Whining About History. Ever notice how women seem to be missed, forgotten, or maybe even purposely left out of history books? We did, so we decided to take the his out of history and make it herstory. Each episode, we discuss the lives and general awesomeness of these historical wonder women, all while having a glass of wine. Or maybe a bottle. Come join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms at WAHpod on Instagram, WAH underscore pod on Twitter, and at Whining About History. Dot com. Remember, that's no H or E in whining. See you, See you soon. soon. Cheers! You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>